Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 9, or you can turn to page 260 in your Pew Bible. Last week we took the we took a look at this at this uh, narrative of the life of David, and we saw how David showed this rich uh, gospel grace kind of love to a stranger, to an enemy, to his to the grandson of his arch rival Saul. He showed this love to a crippled boy named Mephibosheth. It says in Second Samuel chapter four that when Mephibosheth and his nurse heard that that the that the family of Saul had finally crumbled that the family of Saul was no longer on the throne and David was ascending to the throne, that Mephibosheth and his nurse fled in haste. And as they were fleeing, Mephibosheth fell and he was crippled in both of his feet. But in this narrative, David, David asked the question, after all of the abuse that he had suffered at the hand of Saul, he asked the question, is there not still someone, is there not anyone left from the house of Saul that I can show the kindness of God to him. And there's this, this man, this boy, this grandson of Saul, this son of Jonathan, that comes to the surface, a man named Mephibosheth. And David shows him this rich, extravagant, gospel grace kind of love. And what we discovered last week is that the love that David shows to Mephibosheth is a picture, it's a type of the love that God shows to us. David delighted to show gospel grace to Mephibosheth. God delights to show us that very same kind of grace. We saw how God seeks us in our shame and our suffering. We saw how God comes to us and He seeks us to find us so that He can save us from our shame and suffering. And we saw the most wonderful part of all is that God seats us at His own table as His very own sons and daughters. He makes us kings and queens. He makes us rulers in His kingdom. It's an amazing picture of the gospel. But this morning, I want us to look at it from a different perspective. What kind of, what's the proper response that we're called as believers to have to that kind of love? What's the response that God would desire us? Not only that He would desire us, but He would demand that He would call forth from us as we begin to understand and delight in who we are as those loved by God. I think this, I think this passage in 2 Samuel answers this question for us quite well. Give attention to God's Word from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? 
Ziba said to the king, there, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to, all, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask the Lord to open up this passage to us this morning. Our great God and King, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. Father, we ask that you would help us not only to see how you delight to show us mercy and grace, but Lord, this morning that you would show us our proper response to that grace. Lord, we pray that you would make hard things hearable, that as you go about the work by your spirit of opening up wounds, of showing us how we fall short, Lord, that you wouldn't leave us there in despair that you wouldn't leave us there in our failure, Lord, but that you would provide grace, that your spirit would come alongside of us and equip us and enable us to do do all things for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost exactly nine years ago, Kendall and I received our first call into ministry. We were called to start the RUF ministry at Furman University. There was a, a ministry that was there before we came called WDA, Worldwide Discipleship Association. This ministry was was beginning to dwindle and they were beginning to, to kind of, their time was coming to an end. And so several of the members of their core group decided that they wanted to transfer their charter to RUF. And so this ministry became RUF. And a lot of the folks that were part of that core ministry for WDA became part of our core ministry our first year at Furman University. One of the things that was interesting is that the people that were part of this ministry weren't the people that I would have handpicked to be part of our new ministry. They were people very unlike me. We had very little in common. I would almost go so far as to say that we were incompatible 
with one another. They were those that were very minded in the area of science and chemistry. They were a lot of them that were very adept at social awkwardness in driving people away. And there was one particular student that rose to the surface, a man, a student named Cliff, Clifford Schlecht. I have numerous memories about Clifford Schleck, but one of my favorite memories was a time when Kendall's aunt and her mother had come to visit us. They were at some kind of an RUF event. I think it was our large group. And it was over. And her, her aunt, Ruth Kennedy, came up and she all of a sudden found herself cornered with Cliff. And Cliff walked up to her and he stuck his hand at a close talk distance right almost into her abdomen and he said, Schlecht. <laughs> and that was it. And so she said, well, hello. I'm Ruth Kennedy. And she backed off from the close talking and she, and he just stared her down like the, the barrel of a gun. So she's figuring, I need to come up with some conversation to have. And so I saw this going down. So I swooped in, tried to kind of like save her from the social awkward situation and moved her away from, from Cliff. Another time, it was our second year of ministry. Cliff was still around. It was the first RUF of the year. You want to put forth your best foot, your best effort. And so my musician was up front. Cliff was running the slides. And we're singing, And Can It Be? And all of a sudden we get to that part of the the hymn where we need another slide because it's it's a longer song. And so uh, our musician said, if Cliff will simply put the next slide up, and he said, there's too many verses in this song. And he hollers it out so everybody hears it. And I'm thinking, this is great. Welcome to RUF. We're glad you all came. It's going to be a wonderful night. And we don't like the fact that And Can It Be has so many verses. We'll try to shorten it for next week. Um, And so uh, we worked on from there. I can remember numerous times where he would come up. He, when we would go on retreats for fall conference, Cliff didn't bring a sleeping bag or sheets and bedding. He brought a cloak. It was a cloak like something out of the Lord of the Rings. And he would wrap himself in it at night and he would sleep in it. But unfortunately, he would also bring it out in the daytime. And he would walk around with this black cloak around him. He wrote a science fiction novel while he was at Furman. He also developed his own language that he spoke and no one else spoke. He was extremely awkward. I can remember one night when the phone rang and Cliff was on the other end and I thought, Lord, help me. I'm at home. The last person on the face of planet Earth that I want to talk to right now is Cliff. And I remember saying, Cliff, why don't you talk to Kendall? She's right here. I'm sure she would love to talk to you. And so I passed the phone off. That's the kind of pastor that I am. I passed the phone right to Kendall, and she is so gracious that she loved him and cared for him. And one day, it was finally D-Day. It was time to have a conversation. And we sat down across the table from one another in the Furman cafeteria. And and I, I said things that pastors are supposed to say. And I said, Cliff, you know, I just want to tell you, brother, you are one of the one of the most special people in our life uh, lives. That, that I love the way that you love me, and you love my wife, and you love my children. You can be one of the most amazing people in all the world to have a conversation with. But Cliff, i got to be honest with you, brother. You might simply be the hardest, the most awkward, the most difficult person in the face of the earth that I've ever had to try to love and minister and pastor. You make it difficult for people to love you. And Cliff looked up and he said, You're right. And I'm so sorry. And I need you to help me. And I need you to be my friend. I wish I could tell you at that moment that those were the words I wanted him to say. I think, to be honest with you, what I'd rather him said was, 
I knew that was the kind of person you were, and I don't want to be your friend anyway. And I would, I would have rather at that moment that he would have stood up in anger and rage, and he would have stormed out and said, I'm done with you. Because then this high-maintenance, inconvenient student would have been out of my life, and I could have gone on with dealing with people that were neat and tidy, people that were easy to love. But Cliff said, can we meet together every week? Let's meet together, and let's, let's have breakfast at Chick-fil-A every week. I said, okay, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, i got a great idea. Why don't we study the sciences together? Why don't we study, you know, macroevolution and microevolution and intelligent design and creation science together? Okay, um, if you know anything about me, I'm not interested in any of those things, unfortunately. I'm interested in college football. I'm interested in pop culture and television shows and things like that. But let's, let's get together and talk about the sciences. And he said, here's what I'll do. I'll print out an article, and every week we can come and discuss this scholarly article together. So I can remember arriving to Chick-fil-A early in the morning, pulling up my article that I hadn't read, trying to underline some of the words in bold print so that I might have something to say to this person that was a genius um, so that he would not think that I was a complete idiot. And we went inside, and he always said, Rob, you know, I'm not like all the other firm students. I don't have any money. I don't have a lot of money. Any way you can buy that biscuit for me? Okay, Cliff, no problem. We'll get the biscuit. So we sat down for an hour and a half every week, and I can remember those mornings when the alarm went off and I rose early in the morning to go meet Cliff to talk about the sciences that I dreaded that in my soul. But there was a strange phenomena that took place as we left every week. There was this sense of fulfillment. There was this sense of accomplishment. There was this sense of I was doing what I was called to do. Strangest thing in all the world began to happen. I actually began not only to love Cliff as a pastor, but I began to like him as a friend. A couple of years ago, this relationship came full circle because unmo- the most unbelievable miracle of all miracles took place. Cliff got married. He got married to a normal, regular, beautiful, amazing woman. She actually serves as a staff member in a PCA church. And, she, and uh, Cliff and his wife asked me if I would come and officiate their wedding, and so I did it. And it's amazing what God has done in his life. And one of the things that was especially amazing was hearing him say kind words about me and my family and about our students from Furman at that rehearsal dinner. If he'd only known what really was going on in my heart at those times when I was finding it so hard and so difficult and I found every reason in the world not to love him. Now the question is this, was that an extraordinary kind of love? Maybe it was. Maybe it was a kind of love that was out of the ordinary. But it's not a different kind of love than that very same love that God calls us to have for other people. You know, you look at this passage about David and Mephibosheth, and you hear all the things that David does for him. How much it cost David to love Mephibosheth. Was that an extraordinary kind of love? I'd say so. It's it's out of the ordinary. It's not something that we normally see. But is it an extra credit kind of Christian love? No, it's not. It's the very same kind of love that God calls all of us to have. You see, God is a God who seeks us in our shame and suffering, who saves us from our shame and suffering, and seats us at His table as kings and queens. And He calls for a proper response from you and me. He calls us not only to be those whom He delights in, whom He shows mercy and grace unto, but He calls us to show that very same kind of mercy and grace to other people. What other people? All other people. Whatever people we come, come across us in our daily life. I want to talk about three things along these lines. I want us to unpack this calling. I want us to unpack this response, this, this demand that the gospel calls for. The first thing is that the gospel calls us, it demands us to seek out others in their pain and suffering. Look in verse 1. 
David asked the question, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show kindness, the kindness of God, to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. David seeks out an opportunity to show grace and mercy. David seeks out the opportunity to show grace and mercy, this Hesed loyal kind of love, to the grandson of his archenemy. He does this. Why does he do it? Why does David seek and find this Mephibosheth? Well, there's, there's two reasons. I think the first reason is because of something that takes place back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. David enters into a covenant with his friend Jonathan. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel 20, verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. And more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. You see, the first reason that David shows this love, the first reason that David seeks out this opportunity to show love to Mephibosheth is because the covenant that he made with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, it was, it, was, it was a covenant. It was a relationship. David had pledged himself. He had vowed himself to Jonathan and to his household totally and timelessly forever. He had vowed to do Jonathan's household good all the days of his life. That was the first reason. But I think the second reason, as you look at the life of David, was, was even something far greater than that. We sang about it this morning in Psalm 51, a psalm of David's confession. David knew all too well his own need for grace. He knew he didn't have it together. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he was a wretch. He knew that he was someone who was guilty and had sinned against God. He knew that his life was a mess. And he knew that when he was at the bottom, when he was in the pit, that God had stooped down and sought him out and found him out to show him gospel grace. And that gospel grace that God showed David, that gospel grace that God shows us, it calls us, it demands us, to show that same kind of love and grace to other people, that we would seek them out. In just a few weeks, we're all going to have an opportunity to seek out and find people that have needs. One of the things that always amused me or humored me or amazed me when I was growing up was I grew up in a pretty nice neighborhood. And so on Halloween, all the kids from, from the not-so-good neighborhoods would, would drive in. They'd park their cars on our street. And they'd get out, and some of them, most of them weren't our same color, and so that automatically was, a, was an area of discomfort for people in our neighborhood. And some of them were just too old. They shouldn't be trick-or-treating. They're too old. They're not even wearing a costume. So you know what people do. Uh-oh, here they come. Turn the lights out. Let's hide. Be quiet, be quiet. Don't let them know we're here. 
Or let's do something even better. Let's get the huge, big, nice candy bars to give to all the really nice, beautiful kids, the ones that look like us that we know. And let's get the small, little, nasty, old, stale peppermint that we got at one of those restaurants that we had, you know, in the bottom of our pocketbook. And let's give it to them. Maybe they won't come back next year. That's kind of how we go about it. That's, I think oftentimes, like when I think about if I weren't a pastor, what would it look like for me to seek and find other people in their need? I think it's kind of like it is for, for you and it is for me, that there's people that our conscience plugs us. We feel guilty about that coworker that we're just, we're supposed to love him. We're supposed to, to show gospel grace to him or our neighbor down the street or our buddy at the club. And our conscience plugs us and we always feel guilty because we're always going to do it. We're always going to get around to doing it. But we never do. For some reason, the thought never crosses our mind that we might just pick up the phone and we might call them and ask them over to our house. Come eat a meal with us. Come sit down with us. Come, come, come have a drink with us. Come over and watch a movie with us. Or maybe if we don't want them in our house... Maybe if that's too much, maybe if you don't have a house, you can't host them. The the thought never crosses our mind that we might take them out for a meal and do a crazy thing and buy their supper for them, buy their lunch for them, show show them this extravagant gospel grace. If you're like me, so oftentimes I pick up the phone to make those calls and I hope like crazy that they don't answer. Then I can check it off on the list. You know, I did what God wanted me to do. I tried. I tried to call them. Or we hope like crazy that they're busy that night, that they have other plans that they can't come over. But that's not what this, that's not what God calls us to. He calls us to seek them and find them for a reason, which is the second thing. The gospel demands that we seek and find them so that we can sacrifice our lives for them. I would go so far as to say even sacrifice our sanity. The calmness, the, the clarity, the, the beauty, the order of our life. That the gospel calls us to sacrifice our lives for others. Look in verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? David makes promises to Mephibosheth that I'm sure he can't even imagine. He could never have dreamed that when he met the king face to face, that this is what he'd find. That David gives back all the land of Saul to him. That David gives him servants. That David provides for him financially. That David provides an atmosphere of family for him. That David seats him at his own table for every single meal. Amazing. Imagine how much this cost David. It cost him his reputation among his own people, I'm sure. It definitely cost him his reputation among foreign nations. Because this isn't how kings treat their enemies. This isn't how kings treat the former king. They're supposed to eradicate them and their whole family from the land. They're not supposed to love them. They're not supposed to become buddies with them. Imagine how much it cost him even financially. He could have had it all. He gave him back all of Saul's land. But one of the things is, is that in Bible world, we think that everything just becomes great. You know, it all works out. And that's what I love about the last verse in this passage. It says, Now he was lame in both his feet. Something magical didn't just happen when Mephibosheth showed up. He's here. Now he's going to eat at our table. And now he's not crippled anymore. Everything's awesome. He's our our best friend. 
No, he's still crippled. He's still hobbling around on crutches. Imagine how high maintenance this individual was. How inconvenient. How intolerable he must have been. I tell people all the time, you know, it doesn't even matter if they're your best friend. After someone spends the night at your house for three nights, if they're your best friend, you're ready for them to go home. Go back to where they came from. Because they've already worn out their welcome. I was amazed this summer when I found out that my brother Brian and his wife Laura had... I hadn't talked to them about it. I don't know who they'd talked to. But they just decided out of the kindness of their heart to... They already have three young boys. One who's still in a crib. Three young, beautiful nephews of mine that are wild and crazy. And they decided out of their kindness of of their heart to add another person to their home. They invited a foreign exchange student who speaks broken English from Germany to come and live at their house for nine months. The first weekend that Lena, the student, showed up, uh, our whole family was together at my mom and dad's lake house. And we got to spend the weekend together. I told Brian and Laura, I said, I'm so proud of y'all. I cannot believe y'all are doing this. This is amazing. This is, this is a rich opportunity. Imagine what God's going to do through you for Lena. Well, the next week, I was on the phone with Brian, and he said, I said, How's, how are things going? He said, it's not so well. It's, it's, I mean, we're just, it's hard. It's so hard. I never knew how hard it was going to be. It's, it, and we've talked in the weeks, and we've talked in recent weeks, I asked him how it's going. It's so hard. I mean, I, some days, Rob, I just come home, and I just want to go in my den, and I want to be by myself, and I want to have something to drink, and I want to turn on my TV. And every time Lena hears me walk in the door, I hear her bedroom door open, and she wanders in because she wants to talk to me. I didn't realize how much she wanted to talk. She talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. I can't talk anymore. I said, brother, I'm so proud of you. There's other people that hear him share the story, and I've had other people that have said, good gracious, I don't know what they were thinking. Were they clueless? Did they think she was just going to show up and not have any, wasn't going to be a problem, wasn't going to be high maintenance, wasn't going to be inconvenient? That's why I would have never done anything like that. I would have never sacrificed my life for somebody like that. That would have been far too inconvenient. I think that sounds like me. I think that might sound like some of you as well. One of my favorite stories about what this sacrificial love looks like is from one of my favorite books I've read in the last year called Same Kind of Different as Me. Some of you have read it. It's about a guy named Ron Hull who's an international art dealer and his relationship uh, with a homeless man named Denver Moore. And uh, Ron's wife, Debbie, has really been wanting Ron to build this relationship with Denver, and Denver hadn't wanted Ron at all. And all of a sudden, they, some, God does this, works this miracle where they go out and have coffee together. And this is what it says. It says, um, they'd gone out to have coffee and, uh, or breakfast, and Denver asked Ron this question, kind of shoots a laser. He says, what do you want from me? And he says, all I want is to be your friend. This is where the story picks up. It says, Denver stared down at the steaming, steam rolling up from his coffee cup. I've been thinking a lot about what you asked me. I had no idea what he was talking about. What did I ask you? About being your friend. My jaw dropped an inch. I'd forgotten that when I told him at the Cactus Flower Cafe that all I wanted from him was his friendship, he'd said he'd think about it. Now, I was shocked that anyone would spend a week pondering such a question. While the whole conversation had slipped my mind, Denver had clearly spent serious time preparing his answer. He looked up from his coffee, fixing me with one eye, the other squinted like Clint Eastwood. There's something I heard about white folks that bothers me. It has to do with fishing. 
He was serious. I didn't dare laugh, but I did try to lighten the mood a bit. I don't know if I'll be able to help you, I said, smiling. I don't even have a tackle box. Denver scowled, not amused. I think he can. He spoke slowly and deliberately, keeping me pinned with that eyeball, ignoring the Starbucks groupies coming and going on the patio around us. I heard that when white folks go fishing, they do something called catch and release. Catch and release? I nodded solemnly, suddenly nervous and curious at the same time. That really bothers me, Denver went on. I just can't figure it out, because when colored people go fishing, we're really proud of what we catch, and we take it and show it off to everybody that'll look. Then we eat what we catch. In other words, we use it to sustain us. So it really bothers me that white folks would go to all that trouble to catch a fish. Then when they done caught it, just throw it back in the water. He paused again, and the silence between us stretched a full minute. Then, did you hear what I said? I nodded, afraid to speak, afraid to offend. Denver looked away, searching the blue autumn sky, then locked onto me again with that drill bit stare. So, Mr. Ron, it occurred to me, if you was fishing for a friend, you're just going to catch and release, then I ain't got no desire to be your friend. The world seemed to halt in mid-stride and fall silent around us like one of those freeze-frame scenes on TV. I could hear my heart pounding and imagine Denver could see it popping my breast pocket up and down. I returned Denver's gaze with what I hoped was a receptive expression and hung on. Suddenly his eyes gentled and he spoke more softly than before. But if you was looking for a real friend, then I'll be one forever. My friends, that's what gospel grace demands of us. That we go and seek and find people. That we can sacrifice our lives for them. That we seek out inconvenient people that we can serve. I was talking to my intern, Nathan, last week. And he was saying, Rob, it just simply amazes me what, the, what all the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, has to offer. And how many people go and look and listen elsewhere. And I said kind of, I guess, um, in a self-condemning sense. I said, you know, I think the PCA so often is about getting it right about having the right theology, about having the right philosophy of ministry, about our Christian liberty and our Christian freedom, about having the right job and about a biblical world and life view, about making sure that our children are getting the right kind of education. But I don't think that we're a denomination that's defined by sacrificing our lives for other people. I don't think that we're a denomination so often that people would say, you know what, those people that have that right theology have a right practice that goes along with it. We're not people that seek and find awkward, inconvenient, high-maintenance people, thankless people to pour our lives out into. But that's what the gospel calls us to. But it doesn't just call us to sacrifice our lives for them. It calls us to do one more thing, one more last brief thing. It calls us to seat them at our table. Look in verse 7. David tells Mephibosheth at the end of that verse, he says, "...you shall eat at my table always." And then in case he didn't hear it that time, he says it again in verse 10, second part of that verse. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Maybe we should say it again in verse 11 as well. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And just for good measure, one last time in verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. I had a student at at Furman University named Carrie. Carrie grew up in Highland Park, part of Dallas, a suburb of Dallas. Um, She and I found ourselves over at a family from 
our local church's house for lunch one Sunday. I was there. Uh, she was there. Uh, this, this family, the McGills, they have loved me in more extravagant ways than I could ever convey to you. They were blue-collar. They both drove a eight, an 18-wheeler truck for a living. Husband and wife, truck drivers. They didn't have a lot. Their house wasn't filled with beautiful, amazing, extravagant, expensive decoration. The meal that they served us, a lot of time and thought and energy went into it. But it wasn't served on fine china. It wasn't something that was going to be sold um, at one of the finer restaurants in town. And after we ate there, a couple of weeks later, I said, Carrie and I were talking about loving your neighbor. I said, Carrie, do you think you could ever ask the McGills over to your house? Do you think you might ever invite them over to your house for a meal? Carrie said, Rob, there's no way I could do that. Why not? I think they'd feel uncomfortable at my house. Really, why would they feel uncomfortable? I mean, because we have so many nice things. I mean, we have a lot of, like, we have a big house, a lot of rooms, a really nice kitchen. We have, I mean, nice furniture. I just think they'd feel uncomfortable. I said, um, you ever been on a really, really nice vacation, Carrie? You know, one of those kind when you get there, it's like, wow, the comforter on the bed is just dreamy and you die for it. And there's bathrobe for you and there's bedroom slippers that you can put on. You know, at night they have a mint on your pillow. In the morning when you wake up, you can have room service because the night before you fill out a card with all the things that you want. Every meal is worth writing home about because it just simply is too good to be true. It's one of those places that if it were possible, you would live and die there because of how much you love it. Have you ever been on one of those kind of vacations? Yeah. Did you have a good time? Loved it. It was awesome. How do you think the McGills would feel if you had them over to your house? And you let them sit on that really nice, comfortable leather chair. And you let them sit on that nice, comfortable leather couch and watch your big screen TV and eat food that was made in your gourmet kitchen and eat on your finest china with your silver. You think they'd like that? You think that would be something they would enjoy or you think that would make them feel uncomfortable? So I think they'd enjoy it. You know, one of the first thoughts when you start, I think one of the first things that Carrie thought when I started having this conversation with her was that I was going to tell her she needed to sell her house. It's amazing how many of us would rather sell our house, really, if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us would rather sell our house and downsize, move into a house with smaller rooms and a not-so-nice kitchen with not-so-nice furniture in our living room so that we have to have not-so-nice people, so we don't have to have not-so-nice people into our homes that we don't have to occupy our lives with people who are high maintenance and inconvenient. But the gospel demands us, it calls us to do that very same thing. It doesn't call us to, to treat people like a mercy ministry, like an object, but it calls us to develop relationships with them. How are, how are we going to do it? I'd say with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2 says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's going to be a labor of love. It's not going to be something that makes... You're not going to feel like doing it. You're not going to want to do it. But it's going to be an action that's required of you. And you're going to do it with fear and trembling. But there's a second part of that verse. It says, For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to His good pleasure. God is the one who will equip us by His Holy Spirit to do what He's called us to do. I'll close with this story. One of my good friends is a guy named Matt Lucas. He was the RUF campus minister at the University of South Carolina for several years. Now he's a pastor on staff at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. But before all that, Matt was a Band-Aid. He was a fill-in RUF campus minister. And at the end of that year, he took 35 students from his campus to RUF Summer Conference. It's kind of the the pinnacle of the year for RUF students and and, and ministers. We gather them all down at Panama City at Laguna Beach, Florida for a week of seminars and preaching and fellowship and encouragement. 
And one of the individuals that Matt brought on the trip is a guy named Jason. Jason was a quadriplegic from birth. And at some part in the week, early on in the week, Matt went up to Jason and he said, How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Do you ever struggle with resentment toward God? He was asking him these questions because you can imagine how difficult it is to be limited to a wheelchair, especially for a college guy at the beach. I mean, do you ever struggle with being with resentment toward God? He said, What do you mean? I mean, you know what I'm, I mean, you know, you're quadriplegic and all. I mean, you struggle with this. Is that ever. Is your paralysis ever an area of difficulty? He said, my mama never let me be resentful about this because of how much God has blessed me. After all, he's given me you guys as friends. And this is what he meant when he said that. See, every day after lunch, a group of, of the guys from Matt's RUF group would come to Jason. They'd, they'd roll him down to the, to the, to the edge of the, the sand at the beach. They'd pick him up out of his wheelchair. They'd carry his shaking body across the sand. They'd carry him out into the breakers. He'd never even seen the ocean before this trip. And they'd throw football, and they'd throw frisbee, and they'd let the waves break over him. And then at the end of the day, they'd get him out of the ocean. They'd carry him out back across the sand, put him back in his wheelchair, and a couple of guys would push him to his room. And they'd push him into the shower, and they'd shower him, and they would clean him, and they would dress him. And they'd take him to supper to sit with him. And then the next day, they'd do it all over again. Is that extraordinary? Is that an amazing kind of love? Is that hesed kind of love? I'd say it is. And whenever I think about that story, my first response is, wow. Wow. And to be perfectly honest with you, in my, at my most sane moments, my second response is, I sure hope God will work that same kind of love in me. Because I can only imagine the fulfillment, the contentment that those those boys knew when they had begun to do what God had created them to do. To love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. My friends, God delights to show you mercy and grace. And that mercy and grace that He shows us, calls us, it demands us to show that very same kind of mercy and grace to other people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for the story of David and Mephibosheth. Lord, don't allow us to leave here feeling guilty. Leave in here feeling like we're failures, like we don't love people enough. Lord, equip us, enable us. Help us to see the beauty of loving other people, the beauty of loving our neighbor. That you would help us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling that we would know that you are the God who works in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through
shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of the 